Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, we're getting this question all the time now. We have an inbox, as you know, and we do look at your queries and requests and this is coming through thick and fast and has been for some time as interest rates have returned to normal or even restrictive levels, depending on your view. Clearly, investors are starting to turn their attention to defensive assets that have just been super unattractive for the last 15 years. I was going to say decade, but really 15 years since the GFC as rates have fallen and then bottomed out at 0.1 of a percent. You know, we just couldn't justify those defensive assets because their yields were so low. So bonds and fixed income, they were just super unattractive and yet now everyone is going, maybe I need to start allocating back to or to those assets for the first time. And yet if you've paid any attention to bonds at all in the last year or two, you would know that these are not quite the simple defensive term deposit type concept you might have been hoping for. So we're trying to pull this apart, explain what's been going on in fixed income markets, get a really good read on it all, and then talk about what you can do if that's a space you want to move into. So today I'm joined by Ken Crompton, who is a senior interest rate strategist with NAB's very highly regarded markets team. You heard from Ray Attrell a couple of weeks ago. We are lucky to have these guys. Ken, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, good day, Gemma. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about fixed income. Well, you know, we would not have said that for a long time. <laughs> we don't want to talk about fixed income. It's super boring. Going to get maybe 50 basis points return on your capital. But now things have really changed so much. Can we just start with the basics? Because I feel certainly from the questions and also from my conversations with so many people, and even for myself, you know, we all have a feel for bonds and fixed income and what they're supposed to do. But bond markets are big, complex beasts. They used to be where everyone made their money. If anyone's ever read Liar's Poker, you would know that. Uh, you know, the big, complex markets, it's not just term deposit type things. Uh, and just before we started recording, uh, The Economist has put out a piece saying, is the world's most important asset class broken, uh, referring to these markets. So can you talk us through roughly the big bond markets, fixed income markets, what they exist to do and how they work? Big question, I know. Yeah, sure, Gemma. Look, I think of the world as being, in, in a financial market sense, the world is a sea of debt to a large um, certainly in the retail space and what you're going to see on the nightly news, it's the equity markets that capture the, a large amount of the commentary time and a lot of the, um, you know, so a lot of the, the more retail-focused analysis. But you know, if you step back and look at the investment markets overall, um, you know, debt is out there and is arguably just as larger, if not larger, and just slightly larger in terms of market cap. Um, you know, taking a look at a, a global debt index, so just picking out um, Bloomberg's Global Aggregate Index, which is an index of um, investment-grade bonds, which is a bit of a subset of, of the debt markets overall. But um, the, but that's a $66 trillion index as it stands at the moment. Um, in terms of where the split is across the across sectors within that market, you know, roughly half of that is actually is actually government debt. Um, another 15% or so is actually government-related debt. So that's um, yeah, in Australia, that would be things like your state governments. 
things like multilateral development banks who, who issue a lot of debt to, to fund themselves, government agencies. About 20% of it, though, is corporate debt. And then um, another you know, sort of 15% of that index is, um, is securitizations, which is often US mortgages. So that, that index is a little bit... Um, a little bit specialist, but still, that's a $66 trillion market cap index out there in a, in a global sense. If you bring that back to the Australian market, the benchmark here for fixed income or for, for bonds in particular is the Bloomberg Osbond index, and that's a $1.5 trillion index just in itself. Now, once again, you know, dominated by governments and state governments, um, over 80%. Um, but there is about 10% of the Australian debt market there. Well, there's about a $160 billion credit market out there in Australia at the moment. So, yeah, these markets are, are serving as places for um, you know, governments in particular to finance themselves. And also, you know, it's the marketplace for, for sort of benchmark risk-free debt in, um, in, in, most, in, in most countries. So, the, um, the, the pool of people who are playing in the bond markets or, or the debt markets, there's a lot of official money has its home there. So um, sort of central banks managing reserves, um, a lot of um, banks are forced or required to hold big, big holdings of, of bonds as part of their central liquidity holdings. That's the assets that they know that there can be a, you know, a, a deep and liquid market for you know, in times of stress. And then beyond that, as I said, you're sort of getting into, into corporates who can borrow directly from the markets there. They can bypass the, the banking sector. They may be able to get better, better interest rates by trading direct or just diversifying their, their pool of funds. So the bond and debt markets are, are enormous and you know, sort of play second fiddle in popular commentary to the share markets. But in terms of actual volumes traded, um, yeah, people would be pretty surprised at the amount of debt that is out there in, in bonds. Yeah, that's incredible when you put those numbers on it. And I made a joke about Liar's Poker before. That was the very, very famous book from Michael Lewis, his sort of first big one. Uh, and the the joke in it is you got moved around depending on how good or bad you were at trading. And the worst thing that could happen to you was you ended up doing equities in Dallas because bonds were where you needed to be. Like bonds trading was much more sexy and exciting than equities trading. So things have changed. But when you talk about those numbers, that's incredible. Do you mind just particularly for those who might not have ever given it any thought, like what are governments in particular when you say that, you know, 50% of that Bloomberg debt, um, you know, in that first index you talked about is governments, what are they borrowing for? Pretty much for anything and everything that that their that their populations could want, I think, um, given the the scale of government deficits that, that are in play these days. So, yeah, primarily it is for funding deficit spending, um, yeah, and that's going to encompass things in the in the short term where the government is you know sort of deliberately sort of running loose fiscal policy. Yeah, for example, during during COVID, governments in Australia and, and globally ran big operating deficits. Um, those were funded via the debt markets. So uh, government bond outstandings increased dramatically through the pandemic period. Um, if you take it back to the state government level in Australia, the states in Australia are running significant uh, budget deficits at, at, across, across nearly every state, except for um, WA and to a lesser extent Queensland. But the big thing the states are doing is investing in, in infrastructure for the most part. So, you know, sort of funding of big infrastructure projects, that's happening via the debt markets, via debt that's issued in in state government, um, you know, in the names of the state government. Um, you know, and globally, um, you know, US treasuries are, are sort of the premier benchmark debt security for, for global debt markets, basically. So, um, 
And that's obviously funding the US government deficit to a large extent. And that's been the cause of some interesting, interesting ructions there over the past um, over the past year or so as well, but we can probably talk about it um, at some point. But in essence, you know, it's sort of any, anything that governments are, are trying to fund via a deficit, whether that be you know, recurring spending or, um, or, or specific investment. I think that's helpful for people to know. So can we just talk through what you're doing then as an investor when you are thinking about going into these markets, generally speaking, you're not trading, right? You're going in as an investor. You are lending. How does that work when you're an investor? Yeah, that's the correct terminology, the, the way to think about um, to way to think about fixed income and bonds. So it's probably useful to even just talk a little bit about what a bond actually is as an instrument and compare that to, you know, to, to an equity holding or a, or a share. Um, what you're getting when you buy most, uh, what, what you'd call a vanilla bond, will be a stream of guaranteed uh, principal payments or guaranteed interest payments over the life of the bond. So I might buy a, a 10-year bond that's issued by the Australian government, for example, that will probably pay a coupon every six months of um, you know, sort of something in the, the region of the equivalent of 4.5% annualised. Um, and then at the at the maturity date, you get that last interest payment you owed, plus you get your principal back in full, so your nominal principal of $100. So that's sort of where the fixed interest or the fixed income name comes from, is that those coupon payments are set. The principal payment is set as well. So um, if you can contrast that to equities, of course, you know, um, dividend payments are subject to to volatility, and of course, um, you know, there's no such thing as a as the principal in, a, in in an equity either. So equities are sort of perpetual instruments. So that's the big um, that's the big thing that defines you know what a bond is, and that's why we speak of the terminology being um, being an investor or someone who's lending money via the bond market. So if you're buying that bond that the Australian government is is selling, then effectively you're loaning them hundred dollars or whatever your principal is for ten years. And in return, you're getting the regular coupon payments in the meantime. So, at the outset, as soon as you buy, when, when you buy a, a vanilla bond fixed income instrument, yeah, you, you're assured, you know, setting aside default and those sort of things, which you generally can be pretty safe to ignore for most uh, sovereign bond markets. Um, setting aside those sort of things, you're pretty much assured upfront of what your cash flows are going to be and what your principal repayment is going to be in, in, in ten years' time. So that sort of gives you a pretty good certainty of valuation. What that doesn't mean, though, is that um, you know the actual price you pay for the bond today, or the price you might be able to sell it for tomorrow, if you have to, um, if you have to liquidate your position for for some reason. Um, what that doesn't mean is that value is, is sort of known or fixed in time, because that value varies depending with the prevailing interest rates in in the market. So that um, yeah, that bond that we talked about, yeah, a four and a half percent coupon Australian government bond. Yeah, maybe today the going rate in the market for lending to the government is about four and a half percent. Maybe we get to a point um, at some point, say two years time, and it's now a bond that's due in eight years. It's still paying you a four and a half percent coupon, so a four dollar fifty coupon, but. If the, prevail, if the RBA, for example, has cut rates in a couple of years' time, maybe the prevailing interest rate is now lower, maybe it's now 3%. So that string of payments of you know, $4.50 equivalent on an annual basis, that's now worth more to someone. So the 
actual secondary market price of bonds can certainly move around. And I guess that's where some of the misconceptions about bonds have come in you know, over the course of the past couple of years, especially as interest rates have moved a lot and as valuations have, have swung around you know, surprisingly wildly. Um, you've sort of implied about the reputation of bonds as sort of being sort of the relatively staid, boring part of the markets. Um, when interest rates are moving dramatically, that can change. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that bit because I think it's so interesting. But you've also alluded to default risk. And I'm just thinking for people who've never given this any thought, and I say this partly because when I was very young, someone educated me very quickly about default risk uh, on different types of fixed income instruments. And I make the comment because, you know, many young people may not have, and youngish people may not have seen this before, but there was a string of defaults on products that were sold to consumers as capital guaranteed. And it can be difficult if you're new to this to know the difference between a government bond, as you say, sovereign debt, where it's unlikely to default, and something that is capital guaranteed. These were advertised on the television, which at the time was a big marketing strategy, and people could get 9% when if you were getting a term deposit at the bank. That was 6%, and it was capital guaranteed. So piles of people piled into these and understood them to be capital guaranteed. And then the company in question went, well, there were several of them. The one I'm thinking of is West Point, but there were several examples, went bankrupt and uh, most of the holders of these fixed income instruments got nothing back. They were not capital guaranteed or only got a little bit. And the guy I was working with who I was kind of like, explain this to me, and he walked me over to the side of our building. We were on the 28th floor and showed me a property development site across the road and said, see that massive hole in the ground? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, that's what you lent to them for, to do the building. But they've run out of money. (laughs) So the fact they told you it was guaranteed is rubbish. You have lent to them for that. You did not lend to the state government that's got revenues or the federal government that's got revenues or a bank that has revenues. You lent to a property developer. They told you it was capital guaranteed, but the default risk was unbelievably high. Great education. Do you mind talking us through the kinds of markets then that investors might be looking at, the extent to which you need to worry about default risk and how that impacts the rate that you might receive on what you're investing in? Yeah, I think you've tied together the two key points in that story there right at the end actually with um, mentioning the interest rate that you could potentially receive versus what the you know, what the, what the default risk really is. Um, and certainly it could be one thing for a corporate issuer to, or any issuer really, to talk about their bonds as being capital guaranteed. It's, but then, you know, guaranteed by who is ultimately the question. Yeah? If it's guaranteed by the, guaranteed entirely by the property developer, well, that's true. If they still exist in 10 years when your bond matures, presumably they guarantee they'll give you the money if they have it. Um, if that's guaranteed in some way by... You know, by by government, that's a lot more um, that, that's a lot more credible claim to to being capital guaranteed over the long run, obviously, and that essentially shows up in in market pricing. And I mean, we can talk too a little bit about bank debt in particular, so bank bonds and how you can actually get varying varying degrees of this uh, of this capital guarantee for for want of a better term, and, and how that can affect pricing as well. But certainly, starting from the bottom of the pile, the lowest. The lowest interest rate or the lowest yielding bonds you're going to find in in the vast majority of markets, uh, developed markets, are going to be 
the government bonds. So in Australia, for example, just talking about, you know, a 10-year government bond trading roughly around um, sort of 4.5% at the moment, that's pretty much the, the lowest yield bond in, in the market because that's the that, that's effectively seen by the by the market as a combination of being the safest in terms of default risk being essentially zero. So you'd, be, you'd feel pretty well assured your capital is indeed guaranteed if you're going to lend to the Commonwealth Government. Um, there's also value in there for the liquidity in government bond markets. You know, turnover is is huge. Um, the outstandings in the government bond market are pushing something like $750, billion dollars in Commonwealth bonds. They're traded incredibly actively by, by all manner of investors constantly, you know, 24 hours a day. So in compensation for that increased liquidity, you might be willing to take a little bit of a lower yield there as well. And then the way that bond markets typically tend to work is everything else starts to be priced relative to that um, to, to that lowest rate benchmark. So next rung up, state government bonds. So they will probably yield you something like maybe sort of 0.6, 0.8% more um, on an annual basis for buying a state government bond. Yeah, I think arguably very few people see the capital or the, or the default risk of being that much greater at the state level. Uh, in fact, it's kind of expected that the Commonwealth would actually step in if there was a problem. But you're trading down to smaller markets. You know, the states have less debt than the Commonwealth, thankfully. Um, the, some of the states are trying to change that, but that's a different story. Um, you know, states have less liquid, less liquid markets, so investors demand a little bit more compensation for that. From there, you start at least keeping entirely in the domestic market, you then start to step out into corporate bonds. So this is where that default risk does begin to take some meaningful part in pricing. So, for example, you know, in Australia, that, that sort of next biggest sector really is banks. So you can go and invest in, invest in bank bank credit or bank bonds, and you can get those, as I was referring to before, they're available in several different um, you know, credit tiers. So it's sort of sitting where... Yeah, in the worst case, where an Australian bank did have a you know, did, did have a credit event or was forced to default, um, some bonds are further up the capital structure than others. So, you know, so somewhere down the bottom of the pile, so the, the, the people that would face losses first are, of course, equity holders. Um, then above that, you start getting into sort of hybrid or, or tier two type instruments. Those have quite attractive yields and are actually quite widely marketed to retail investors in Australia, particularly the hybrid products. Um, because they're further down the, the capital structure and indeed, particularly the hybrids, if there is a credit event for a bank, there's the possibility that you would see your hybrid bonds, which if you, you, know, if you hadn't necessarily read the documents too close, you might be surprised to find rather than being necessarily capital guaranteed, if there was a, a significant credit event for the bank, you may well find yourself converted into, into the equity of a distressed institution, which would be worth you know, dramatically less than your principal. So in those cases, in the risk you should be thinking about there is you know, you, your, your guarantee, so to speak, for your capital is much, much lower because you could actually be, um, be finding yourself holding equity at the end of the day if there was a significant credit event. Um, and then with it sticking within the banks, you can go a little bit further up and get you know, sort of subordinated debt and then senior unsecured debt, which yields the lowest, but that's because you're the furthest up the pile in terms of um, 
in, in terms of the creditor structure. So the, the bank's sort of capital structure is a bit more complicated just because of the regulatory environment that banks sit in and they have a lot more classes of debt than, you know, for example, um, a lot of other institutions. But there's some interesting, you can actually, by looking at where pricing sits across those structures, you can actually sort of get a, a, an interesting feel for, for how the market's pricing different types of risks in that sense. You know, hybrids, which could be converted to equity versus, um, versus subordinated versus senior. So um, the, in fact, the hybrid structure is, has been getting uh, has been getting a lot of discussion and attention from um, you know from as from, so from from APRA and, and ASIC over the course of the past year or so actually just because they want to make sure that people are aware, just just like you've talked about with the example before of where the capital guarantee wasn't quite as um, wasn't quite as tight as people were expecting. Um, APRA and ASIC want to be sure that people who are being who are investing in hybrid bonds because of the yield are actually aware that they're not necessarily as capital guaranteed as some other alternative bond investments out there, for example. So these um, these sort of default risks are, should be in the price and certainly you know, sort of sitting where I am in fixed income research, um, that's almost the, the main um, the, the main factor that determines how, how we think of valuations for bonds and then you take into consideration other things like liquidity and, and stuff as well. Such a great explanation. Thank you. And I think most people understand intuitively they don't want to take default risk with this part of their portfolio, right? That's not what they're doing. Um, they don't want to take default risk with anything, but it's it's a critical risk. And I believe the regulatory framework's changed a lot since the olden days when you could say something was capital guaranteed by yourself when you had no intention of uh, <laughs> of meeting your obligations when things went pear shaped, uh, you know that's all changed. But it's still it was it was highly educational for all of us, myself included. So let's get then to the extraordinary scenario that people are sort of becoming aware of for the first time. Like most retail investors are not looking at bond markets all the time. You know they're supposed to be boring because you're just lending to governments and stuff. Let's say I have assumed I'm taking no default risk or absolute bare minimum default risk because I'm lending to the highest quality borrowers, governments, you know, equivalent thereof. And yet I look at the return for bond bonds full stop over the last 12 months, 18 months, and I go, what the hell is going on there? Can you talk us through it? Comes back to that. That discounting factor, devil, the devil in the detail there that, that I mentioned a little bit earlier, Gemma, um, as, as you know. But um, yeah, look, agree. Just certainly look at some of the year-on-year -year figures for for bonds. I mean, looking at an overall an overall holding of a mix of Australian government bonds, you know, twenty twenty-two calendar year down ten percent, twenty-one calendar year down two and a half. Yeah, this year year to date up up two point four. So bit of a bit, bit of a turn there, which is I guess one of the reasons why we why we're talking. But yeah, for the most part, um, think of bonds. Well, bond, bonds are, by definition, mathematically, the, the price moves with the inverse of yields. So central banks have been raising interest rates over the course of the past 18 months or so. That's put up interest rates across the entire, entire curve. Um, bond prices have moved dramatically lower. And um, you know, within a bond portfolio, you know, how much that affects you can vary quite a lot. You know, the, the measurement that, that we that we use mathematically in, in fixed income analysis is called duration. But I mean, even if you just think of it as being basically how how long the maturity of your bond portfolio is, for example, you know, if you've got a bond that matures in ten years, 
versus a bond that matures in, for example, two years, as interest rates move around, um, you know that um, that hundred dollars that you're due to get back in principal from the ten-year bond, the value of that moves around dramatically more with an interest rate move than the than the value of the payment you're expecting to get back in two years. So, as well as getting differences in in, um, in in returns from from things like credit, um, the the real dominant factor over the past couple of years has just purely been how fast central banks have moved rates. You know, in Australia, from zero to oh sorry, from from point one to to four point three five. In the US, in particular, from zero to five and a half. Um, you know, with moves like that, you know, the time value calculations just move move so much that um, yeah, that's how you end up with these um, these figures like down you know, minus ten percent for bonds, and I think. This is where maybe not necessarily confusion, but I guess surprise can come in from from some investors who who haven't sort of who aren't aware of, of just the magnitude of duration, the magnitude of risk that duration brings to your portfolio, or to, to your bond portfolio in particular. That um, that as interest rates rise, things can move so much, and that this um, this asset class where there's talk of it being you know fixed income. Um, you know, fixed principal, you know, fixed interest. There's a lot of fixed terms in there, but the actual capital value can can move dramatically. But um, but to some extent, I mean, something that's always worth sort of keeping in the in the back of the mind. It depends on exactly how you're benchmarked and exactly how you think of your portfolio as well. But you know, consider that um, the actual nominal value of these cash flows is still fixed. So that ten year bond you bought a few years ago, that's that's maybe yielding 3%. Well, you're still getting that 3% yield um, for the remainder of the bond's time. You're still going to get that $100 in, in eight years now. It's just that the value of it, if you choose to liquidate now, um, is it, it's the mark-to-market value in the short term that, that changes. So you know, in a theoretical world where you could hold everything to maturity, your actual the actual name fixed income does does actually hold up. But that's the, that's the catch in the... In, in the intermediate part is doing a revaluation with a wildly different interest rate, particularly when rates are going up. Um, yeah, that's an issue. But I mean, of course, you know, these these numbers are symmetrical, so you don't need to um, necessarily have rates going up all the time. Um, indeed, for the previous um, you know, twenty or even close to forty years prior to the pandemic, it was sort of the longest bull market in bonds. Um, sort of through through history. So, you know, interest rates on government bonds had in broad terms trended down for decades. So there'd been steady capital gains actually. And um, you know, if you go back to 2019, which was a year where the RBA did cut rates here, you know, you've got bond returns there of seven and a half percent. Even 2020, because rates were cut and then stayed low, bonds were were about plus four percent. So and I guess that sort of would would be the point that we'd Bring people to, to think about in terms of where these um, you know, rebales on bonds might be going in the in the near term, would be that central banks globally are pretty well at their peak. We think um, certainly the US, the case for them needing to do any more tightening is very weak. You know, Australia, I think there's still we still think there's a chance they may need to do one more rate hike next year. But still, you know, compare you know one more twenty five point hike versus um, versus the four hundred and thirty five. Done in a little over eighteen months during during the top, during the cycle so far, the impacts for bonds from here in a negative pricing sense. We think the worst of that is by, is well and truly done. So that's um, that's sort of where we'd where we'd offer a bit of um, positive outlook and, um, and and hope, I guess, for for people looking to allocate into bonds because where 
we talk about them as being a defensive asset really comes from sort of short run negative correlations to to equity prices for example so you know if there is a there is a slowdown in global economies next year as interest rates start to bite if that or continue to bite, I should say, if that does result in softness or some sort of downturn in equity markets, and if it leads to central banks cutting, so well, just as you've incurred this, um, just as you incurred that you know, 10% negative return on your bond portfolio last year, as central banks um, you know, took, rate high, took rates through the roof, if they're cutting them dramatically, you, know, you get some of that back. So I guess that's the, that's the other thing to, to consider as well. The bond math does work both ways, and they are. Um, you know, yields are at their highest now in um, you know, sort of well over a decade for most government bond markets. That's an incredibly thorough, sorry, Murray. So thank you for that. I think for a lot of people, the idea that bonds could be that volatile is quite disorientating. But remembering, you know, if you just buy them and hold them, a la the term deposit analogy, you know, theoretically you get to a point where they do exactly as promised and also very helpful to go maybe we are toward the end of the wild ride now. The left field, and perhaps it's not that left field, but the question I've had recently and I've been asked it on stage just to really, you know, sharpen the mind uh, a couple of times is about so we've talked about, or you've talked about, the multitude of factors that do affect bonds and bond pricing being you know, the quality of the person issuing it, the liquidity of the market, what the coupon is, all those sorts of things. This will depend on uh, you know, how much you're willing to pay for it and all those sorts of things. One question I have been getting is, and it's true probably of most central banks, but let's go with the US. This is where we tend to think about these things. US is running a massive budget deficit, as you've said, so they're spending a lot more than they earn. Literally told my seven-year-old yesterday when she said, I learned about finance at school. I'm like, just spend less than you earn. That's all you need uh, when you're seven anyway. So they're running a massive budget deficit. They have extraordinary quantities of bonds that uh, they are theoretically bringing to market. Does that put the bond market into a weird situation where you're just having to kind of flood the market at this point? There's been a lot of talk about treasury auctions and what's been going on there. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, a market is a market and the market clears where supply meets demand. So if the supply curve is shifting wildly to the upside, as um, as treasury supply has done, then Microeconomics 101 tells you there should be a there should be a move in the price. So, and my answer to that is a very limited yes. Supply has been having an impact, but um, but I guess sort of taking a step back and looking at it. So, I mean, if you go back to I think it was around July, um, the ten year government bonds in the US that was pretty much the the first time that they had um, you know, and. and they sort of started to break through four percent. So you go to end of July, ten year treasuries at four percent. By the time we get to um, you know, mid October, they're touching five percent. So that's a that's a hundred point move in the space of um, yeah in, in the space of sort of two and a half months. Reasonably rapid sell off in the scope of global bond markets, and that does make a big dent in prices. So you know what happened through that period? So well, yeah, at some point there, I think mid to late June, the U.S. Treasury resolved their debt ceiling 
uh, debate, they suspended the debt ceiling. So that was a, a limit on how many bonds they could actually have outstanding or how much debt overall the US government could have. So with that being suspended, um, the Treasury then set about building up their cash reserves like um, you know, like any of us or, or, or like any corporate. Um, you know, governments like to have some level of, of working capital on hand to deploy. Um, they burned through that uh, whilst the debt ceiling was in place. With that suspended, they started to increase their cash again. As well as that, there was the deficit spending we've talked about, um, you know, the, the tail end of the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, that's sort of driving massive public spending in the US. And you know, so as a result, you had the Treasury come out and say that um, say that they wanted to issue sort of roughly, you know, a trillion dollars or wanted to borrow a trillion dollars from the market over the course of, over the course of Q3. So as well as... So you had this big increase in bond supply, and the and the price then increased dramatically over the next few quarters, over the next few months. So, on paper, obvious link. I mean, I think it's actually a bit more nuanced than that. Um, if you look at the U.S. economic data that was coming out over the course of late Q2 and and into Q3, the recession that many had been looking for over the course of 2023 it became pretty clear that that just wasn't happening, and instead, U.S. economic data was actually accelerating. So if economic growth is strong, if you're in the position of thinking about where you're going to allocate US dollar investment, you know, if you've thought that equities were, were a risk as the recession came along and the bonds were going to be safe, so well, instead you're seeing this, this sort of very so strong stimulus coming through, stronger than expected economy in the US. So, well, you know, maybe I don't want to lock myself up into US government bonds at 4%, which are pricing rate cuts that are clearly not going to happen. Yeah, maybe I'll go and you know, do something different, equities, whatever. So to that extent, there's sort of a, a fundamental reason that yields should be higher if the economy is stronger, because by definition, there's more productive investments to, to make elsewhere. Um, as well as that, you know, bond markets, particularly government bond markets, can be driven by a lot of sort of complex global factors. Um, at the end of July, as well, you had the Bank of Japan make some policy changes, which probably meant that Japanese investors at the margin yeah, may have been a little bit less interested in treasuries for a while there. So there's sort of another dint to demand as well. So if you think about the big increase in interest rates, well, was it because buyers were really spooked by this extra $100 billion of increased issuance over the course of that quarter? Or was it simply because US fundamental growth expectations were a lot stronger um, you had, a little, to a limited extent, this sort of Bank of Japan factor coming through. And as well as that, once markets start to move or trend significantly in a direction, um, these movements, just as, in, just as you can sometimes see in equities, in, in bonds, these movements can often significantly overshoot. Um, you know, people get caught out and have to, have to liquidate positions that they would otherwise probably normally want to hold. And I think that probably explains to some extent why that sell-off probably pushed towards 5% and maybe didn't stall out, you know, sort of somewhere closer to, to four and three quarters or even a little bit lower. So we've got um, a little bit lower Treasury issuance coming over the next few quarters. I think we're coming down from a, from a trillion down to $750 billion or something like that this quarter. But I wouldn't point to that as being a reason why interest rates have come off this quarter. It's more related to um, the softening of US data. So 
if the sort of thought experiment I like to sort of try and 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 make to drive this point is that you know, for example, we do get into next year. You know, U.S. core inflation on a six-month annualized basis is already down instead of two point six. It's certainly lower than three percent. So seeing it at around the the two percent target within within a relatively short period of time, yeah, not impossible. If the U.S. economy does suddenly slow and inflation is back at a relatively modest level, you know, what's the Fed going to do? They're going to cut. Um, what's that going to do to the US budget deficit? It's probably going to widen it again, um, either by deliberate actions on behalf of Congress, that might be tricky given the politics next year, or just via what they call you know, the automatic stabilisers in, in, in government budgets. That's going to probably see, um, possibly see US debt needs increase. But you know, would I expect bond yields to go up in that situation? Yeah, certainly not. If the Fed cuts by for example, if it's some sort of emergency where the Fed cuts by 200 points, for example, that is going to pull 10-year government bond yields down, even if um, issuance went up. So the I'd sort of think of, if you think of that 100-point move in sort of July to October, the supply factors or sort of the short-term mismatch between supply and demand, you know, I think that's worth tens of basis points with, within any given move in Treasury yields, the moves in hundreds of basis points. That's still entirely at the at the dictate of, of the economic fundamentals, you know, particularly for, for for sort of deep sovereign bond markets where where sort of the risk free status is pretty much assured. So, long answer there. I'm sorry, but um, but yeah, I would say that the supply minor factor um, really it's about the fundamentals because even if you extend that to Australia, um, Australia at the federal level is running a really strong fiscal position. If you go back to even the Budget, the first but the first federal budget last year, the one that was handed down prior to the federal election, you know, that was predicting, I think, um, yeah, maybe a small surplus for the year. But anyway, we ended up doing a reasonably solid surplus for FY23. We're probably going to do a reasonably solid surplus for FY24. So government bond issuance in Australia at the federal level is actually dramatically down from expectations at the beginning of last year. So on that basis, you know, are our interest rates dramatically lower because our issuance is falling. So, well, no, it's not. They're actually dramatically higher because global, sort of the fundamentals of the stronger economy, as well as global interest rates moving higher over that period, have just far outweighed any effect that supply of Australian bonds will have on the market. I wish I'd had you with me when I was answering the question. <laughs> it's a far more thorough answer than the one I gave, but very, very helpful. So, we've covered. Some of the more complex areas of bonds, right, and fixed income markets, rather than just going, they're supposed to work like this and they do this thing and this thing and it's your fixed income and it's your defensive portfolio. Because I think it's really important for people to understand they're going to do some things you didn't expect and they most definitely have done some things you wouldn't have expected, but the world changed pretty quickly last year and uh, and we all saw some interesting things. So let's say I'm an investor who believes and takes takes some comfort from your point that the worst may be behind us in terms of massive pricing moves, but also I want that stable coupon. I want that defensive component of my portfolio. I'm, you know, I believe in a 60-40 portfolio, whatever it might be. What can I look to as a retail investor or as a just, just an ordinary investor as a way to get exposure to these sorts of things? There are a few specialist retail fixed income brokers uh, out there in, in, in the Australian market. And, you know, 
I, from what I've, I'm not not affiliated or, or endorsing any of them in particular. And from what I've, from, from my limited exposure researching those, um, yeah, th th they can provide access to, um, you know, to, to the bond markets in a relatively direct manner. For example, you know, buying specific corporate bonds, yeah, often sort of across various. Um, yeah, various market sectors, you know, credit quality, um, even sort of instrument type. You know, we've mostly we've focused on our, focused our discussion here on literally you know, sort of traditional fixed income bonds. You know, there are also floating interest rate bonds and a few other different structures out there. So that's certainly one option that is open to to, to retail is is via those via those means. Um, yeah, you know, Australia has made some efforts in sort of regulatory reform over the course of the past decade or so to try and open up retail access to the bond market, but it it hasn't really sort of driven huge changes to to, to this point. So yes, the, the barriers there tend to be you know, relatively large minimum lot sizes, um, which, which, which can be a barrier. Um, I guess the other route to go is via exchange-traded funds. So there are sort of several providers of, of, of bond ETFs out there now that are often, you know, tracking some variant of that Bloomberg Osborne index that I that I mentioned earlier on in terms of a purely domestically oriented portfolio. So those are th 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 those are quite popular, and even then, you know, the investor then has the ability to sort of maybe customise their risk profile to some extent. You know, for example, by choosing a shorter duration benchmark or a longer duration benchmark, or or purely credit, purely government. So there's plenty of options out there out there like that to sort of suit to suit risk risk appetite as well. Um, some of the the Commonwealth government, for example, does support a retail bond program in Australian government bonds. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, think the oftentimes you know the yields there can be, you know, probably aren't necessarily that appealing. But um, I, I think you know the, the government does sort of support listings of their bonds directly on the ASX. For example, state governments have direct retail bond programs as well. You know, once again, the reasons that institutions are sort of attracted to bonds and quite happy to tolerate what would appear on the surface to be relatively low yields, uh, sort of deep market liquidity, and uh, and, and those other factors. Um, Without that value necessarily being available, be unlocked by a retail investor, um, you know, the raw yields on, for example, a, you know, a government bond you know, may look you know, sort of less than appealing. So that's where you do tend to find that um, some sort of more credit-oriented products do tend to be do tend to have a bit more appeal um, to the you know, in, in the Australian market. And I mean, in terms of specific bonds, for example, I mean, you could think you can you can look at um, even a senior bank debt is probably yielding somewhere around six percent at the moment. Um, yeah, which is pretty competitive compared to a compared to a term deposit. I mean, then go and overlay your know, market risk and lots of the stuff that we've talked about. But um, even with that market risk, there's a market risk because there is a secondary market. There's not a secondary market in term deposit. So that's uh, so that's something to think about as well. There is so much for investors to think about and process with all of these things. If you're an Abtrade customer, and we hope that you are very much, uh, you can certainly go on and do some searches, even for hybrids. Ken mentioned those at the beginning and uh, and some of the managed and passive bond and fixed income type products that exist on the ASX now. It's quite amazing the range of things you can have access to as a retail investor. It's a lot better than when I first started and these things were Hard to come by. Uh, and you can also catch Ken, you're on the morning call sometimes, you're doing the early starts. Yep, I'm yeah, on the, the, the NAB Research Morning Call podcast. I think you'll next hear from me on, uh, on, on Friday if you're, if you're a regular morning call listener. 
And we strongly recommend that you become one because it is the best way to get across what is going on in the world. Ken Crompton from NAB Markets, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Gemma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We do take your questions really seriously. I cannot tell you how many questions we've had about this. And Ken's done an extraordinary job of covering so many critical things relating to bond markets and fixed income and so on. But please just keep hitting us up with your questions and topics you'd like to hear about us. And please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.